Regards, and welcome to Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the podcast where I talk at length about matters of nearly no urgent need, nor heavy impact on our daily lives, in the interest of helping you there off to a more peaceful state. In this episode, we will renew our run of roundups by enumerating the enjoyable inside activities that have occupied us these cold and stormy months past. Here where I live, we have experienced several weeks of somewhat cold and extremely wet conditions. As a result, I am sure we have all been motivated to creatively concoct pastimes to weather the weather and confidently escape our confinements. Then I thought it might be soothing for us to return to the scroll for a visit back to my Instagram feed of benches. The winter time is surely not the most ideal time to enjoy a good sit outdoors, but that does not mean that our intrepid bench photographers are not braving the elements for our benefit to deliver sitting spaces challenged in this cold season. Or, alternatively, present the occasional non-wintry setting for a distant biome of moderate to warmer whereabouts. I would also like to put forth a modest apology for the infrequency of our visits of late. I owe this to the string of major holidays and having to either host or travel for events with friends and family. As well, I have been devoting an amount of my additional free time to developing another endeavor, which also has a podcast component, the style and purpose of which I will be very excited to share with you, dear listener, at a later date when we are ready to announce. Finally, I would like to thank you all for this delightful past year of podcasting. We began this journey on January 9th, 2022, and it has been my pleasure to visit with you, however infrequently, over this past year. Before we begin, I would like to recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice, or YouTube. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Rambles Pod, or follow me at Anvil1 on Twitter. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. When the weather outside is frightful, the fire is so delightful. Hopefully in your fireplace or equivalent safe heating scenario. And we have no place to go because we are more or less trapped inside by the chilly and wet elements of the cold season. 
we are compelled to pass the time indoors, either alone or with family and friends, with any number of tasks or activities that do not require us to bundle up or don our closest outfit to a deep-sea diver's suit. In this roundup of indoor activities I know, I will endeavor to remember most of the things I like to do when it is cold outside, and avoid my least favorite or unpleasant responsibilities that present themselves as opportunities, such as doing taxes, when there is no option to escape to the airy, open world outside. I also intend to focus specifically here on items ideally involved in indoor, wintertime activities. Although the mind scrambles to provide examples of summertime indoor activities, besides going to an air-conditioned movie theater, I intend to avoid them nonetheless. A quick reminder about the roundup. Here I list strictly from memory, without notes or preparation, and may therefore ramble in just about any direction to the detriment of successfully listing everything in our topic du jour. This winter we got sort of back into doing puzzles, and I think that's a good one to start with. You really can't do puzzles anywhere but trapped indoors at home. Of course, you can visit someone else's home to do a puzzle, but generally speaking, you won't do a puzzle anywhere but home. Obviously, there are a number of reasons for that. One being that a puzzle, oftentimes with a thousand or more pieces, is not something that you can unbox and rebox very easily in a more temporary environment. Unless you are remarkably proficient at puzzles, for example, you wouldn't take one out at a restaurant. And although you might do one with friends or family at another home, generally speaking, you would be doing so at the invitation of your host, rather than sneaking out a box of puzzle and pouring it out on the counter just willy-nilly. It's also not an activity that you'd really do outside. Jigsaw puzzle pieces are easy to lose, so even if you thought it was a good option for the picnic table, you might find quickly that they can become lost in the dirt or grass underneath. And that's on a good day, if there's no wind. If there's wind, then doing a puzzle outside is right out. I've truly never considered doing a puzzle, for example, while on a campout. Now, I do like playing games while camping, 
and we'll usually bring a few games with us when we camp. But camping games need to be compact, usually. And they need to have a minimum of small parts or pieces that can get easily lost. Especially after the sun goes down and you're trying to play a game by fire or lamplight. Probably the bulkiest game that we might end up carrying along with us to camping might be train dominoes, which we have in a pretty hefty metal case. And although it is bulky, I would recommend the train dominoes as an option for your camping endeavors. Dominoes are generally difficult to lose in the dirt, for example, or the grass. They're big and hefty enough most of the time. It's also a game that works well with just about every skill level or experience, and you can play it for about as long as you want, either a couple of small games, or you can play until you've been through all of the numbers. We do, however, tend to prefer to bring uh, maybe like a trivia game. We went to a national park, and I forget which one, and I think you can probably obtain this at any national park, is the official national parks trivial pursuit, which comes in a neat little wood-themed plastic container that has a carabiner that locks it shut and it has one die in the bottom and the deck of cards and otherwise no board and the rules are designed so that you don't need a tabletop and you don't need to keep score on a sheet of paper and it's just you know doing the trivia and then when you get a answer right you keep the card and then you just keep track of your points that way and you can play to a number of points or make your own house rules and like any trivial pursuit it's pretty playable um, multiple times because you know there are five questions per card and you only do one at a time and in, you know, natural, trivial pursuit fashion, the questions are varying degrees of difficulty. Sometimes you'll get a softball, and then sometimes you'll get one that requires some sort of very esoteric knowledge about national history or natural history. All of the topics in the National Parks Trivial Pursuit are related to parks, American history, and natural history. So there won't be any questions that go too far afield from those main topics. I hesitate to say that there won't be any questions about, for example, technology or movies and television or pop culture because sometimes they are related to a national park in some way.
Maybe a movie was filmed in a national park. Or maybe there's a sports star that donated to a park or had a favorite one. They do find ways of weaving in some of the more familiar types of topics into the relatively confined version that you get from the National Park's Trivial Pursuit cards. One of the things that you can always do, of course, is whether or not you're at a national park, you can go to the camp store and see if they have anything on hand if you've forgotten a game. You know, get your firewood and some trivia. Now then, we don't want to go too far afield here. Of course, this is a rambly podcast, but we're trying to focus on indoor activities, and I'm definitely talking about the outdoors. And I think it's worth sewing up the puzzle conversation before moving on to even the other types of games that have already been mentioned here. So, puzzles. This season we got started with a puzzle that is in the shape of the leg lamp from A Christmas Story. It was our second time doing the puzzle. We did it last year or the year before. It comes in a wooden box that's labeled Fragile. And it's actually a rather difficult puzzle because the lampshade and the leg itself have pretty repeating patterns and it can be difficult to build both the lamp and the leg. Now, as you could imagine, we chose to do that one at Christmas time, but that got us interested in doing more puzzles after the fact. Now, I wouldn't say we've done a traditional rectangular puzzle in the last few months, and therefore probably not in the last few years, so I think we'd be looking for recommendations. We don't have a good collection of more straightforward puzzles. What we do have is this new or recent genre of puzzle called magic puzzles. I think that's what they're called. And if I'm wrong about that, I will update you on the next episode. And although they are rectangular in shape, the thing is is that the middle of the puzzle, parts of the puzzle move are rearranged after you're finished building it. They sort of tell a story, and after you build the main rectangle, you move those pieces around to make room for a new centerpiece, and the centerpiece's pieces are in a separate envelope, so you don't get to even see them right away. It's kind of like a transforming puzzle. And it's very fun to do. 
Now, we got the first three from that series uh, when the Kickstarter for that launched many years ago. And we had one more left over this holiday season, or I think maybe on into January, I can't remember. And we decided to do that puzzle, and it was, we had so much fun doing it that we looked up whether there were more, and sure enough, there were, I think, three or four more installments of those puzzles. And by installments, I mean a set of three more puzzles each. So we picked a couple from the different series that sounded good, and I think ordered three more of them, because they're just delightful and very unique, a very unique experience. And each puzzle is done by a different artist with a different art style. Um, some of them have very bright and vibrant colors. Some are a little bit more monotone. Many of them are very, very detailed in that there are lots of tiny characters. Um, similar to like a like a Where's Waldo page, like it's almost in some ways similar to a puzzle version of Where's Waldo, in part because, not that you're looking for Waldo, but because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of little tableaus throughout each puzzle to look at with little characters doing different things which also makes it fun to put those puzzles together because you're looking for very, very specific things when you're looking for them. I suppose that might make it easier, but in some cases the characters all look alike, and so it's not easy to tell them apart and find where they are on the puzzle. And just because there's a lot of unique characters doesn't make it easy, because one of the things that these puzzles do in a very clever way is that they tend to repeat elements, shapes, colors, objects throughout the whole puzzle. So when you're looking at the part of the puzzle that you're working on, you might, for example, be looking for a message in a bottle, in, a, in an aquatic-themed puzzle. And then when you start looking around, you find that there are quite a few of them, and your search is no longer as specific as you thought it was. And that's even its own delightful discovery. Now, we did those puzzles, and I can't recommend them enough. But we also, while we were waiting for the new magic puzzles to arrive, we had on hand another puzzle that was a sort of old-timey poster for varieties of mushroom. So it had, it was full color, but it had pictures, drawings really, of 
maybe 20 or 30 different mushroom types. And each one had a little arrow pointing to it with a sometimes a description or the name of the mushroom. And then it had a full border. So now that I am remembering this puzzle, I have to go back on what I said before and, and, and correct that I did in fact do a puzzle that was rectangular. This was definitely a rectangular puzzle. And I will say this one just gave us all kinds of trouble. We really had to uh, work at this one because it had so many spots where the puzzle was just blank. The background of the poster was like a beige that had Maybe a very subtle gradient, but not enough of one that you could say one piece was part of one part of the puzzle. So it was kind of mind-numbing just to find the pieces that were in space, so to speak. But even then, the pieces of mushroom weren't always easy to find either because the art style for some of the mushrooms was very similar for example the the border of a of a drawing might have a similar border to another one and so even though the mushroom itself that was being depicted might be completely unique the line on the outside of the mushroom was not I would say for sure that we did not have a great time doing that puzzle. And I mean that just relative to the pleasure from the other magic puzzles. We did also fret quite a bit with the leg lamp. But the mushroom one is tough. Not as tough, probably, as one of the more challenging puzzles that are out there. There are a lot of challenging puzzles, some that are intentionally challenging. My mom and my stepfather are big puzzle aficionados, and we sometimes try to find puzzles for them that we think might be super challenging because we view them as being quite expertly in the area of solving puzzles. By comparison, we're absolute amateurs. But that's a good thing about puzzles. It's something that you can do with any number of people. You can divide and conquer. And for a long period of time, like a winter month or a series of weeks where there's endless rain or snow, you can set that puzzle up on a table and you don't have to do it right away. You can just sit down and do a little bit here and a little bit there. Maybe while there's a podcast on or you're watching a TV show, you can do it. The puzzle does not demand that you complete it quickly, unless, of course, you need the table space for something else. 
Obviously, if you're doing this at the holiday time, you might need to worry about whether that puzzle is there when you have guests for an event, such as a Christmas or Thanksgiving or New Year's celebration, or, as might be the case, a birthday. Puzzles truly are, in that sense, one of the most messy of the tabletop activities insofar as they're chaotic until you sort the pieces. But I think they're a good indoor activity overall. There's a good sense of satisfaction when you complete one because of how long it takes to complete. If it's several days or weeks, you finally put that last piece in and it feels good. So I think puzzles are not just a good choice, but they've kind of got to be up there as some of, as maybe even one of the best choices. Do you like doing puzzles? Let me know what you think of puzzles. It would probably be irresponsible to talk about puzzles at so much length and not even pause for a moment to talk about tabletop board games. Now, I know I mentioned some of them as I diverged into camping conversation, but truly tabletop board gaming is not something you tend to do while camping or traveling. And I just wanted to make sure to mention it. If I'm honest, we did not get too much into tabletop gaming over the last few months, but we do like to play tabletop games, and we have a pretty good collection of them. I personally prefer the games that are more focused on storytelling or have a storytelling mechanic sometimes based on movies or TV shows, but tend to have a theme, tend to have a storyline built into how you play the game. And then I'm also someone who prefers to play games that are cooperative games, in part because I'm not that competitive as a board game player. Um, I get a little bit stressed out from focusing too much on the competition, and I also just like working together. It's the same as doing a puzzle. You know, the puzzle isn't a competition. And a cooperative board game is also not a competition, except that you and your fellow players are competing against the game itself 
and that's what I prefer. I just tend not to be the best at competition, although I will win from time to time when I'm put in that position. And then I'm also just a terrible bluffer or negotiator when it comes to the variety of games that require that sort of thing, wheeling and dealing or lying and treachery. However, I will say that there are some games that have a story and are cooperative, but also have a mechanic in them that allows for the potential for treachery or backstabbing. And those games I kind of like because they bring a little bit of competitive variety, but not a ton. There are several games like this now. There is a board game based on the the thing, the John Carpenter movie. There is a horror game. Uh, I think it's it's got betrayal in the title, and I'm embarrassed to forget. Uh, betrayal at the house on Haunted Hill, maybe. That is a game that launched kind of broken, but from what I understand, it is. It has been sort of automated with an app and plays a lot better now than it used to. Um, there's a really, really involved big game called Mansions of Madness, which is based on H.P. Lovecraft stories, and that one requires quite a lot of time and pieces, and it has many, many expansions. It is also available in Tabletop Simulator, I believe, if you don't want to go through that trouble. But it's a fun one to play in person, and that's another one that has a good app integration, as well as, I believe, user-created levels to play, because if you own all of the map pieces, which are modular, you can build new maps based on a story that someone else created. And in that game, everybody is on the same side, but sometimes a character that has gone insane can become a detriment to the team and actually have a different goal to win the game. Now, another one I rather like was called Dead of Winter, and it's a zombie apocalypse-themed game. And it takes place in winter. And the premise is pretty cool. Basically, it's a cooperative game where each player controls two or three survivors, and each survivor has 
a unique personality and set of skills. And each turn, players use those characters with their sets of skills to scavenge equipment and medical supplies and weapons from the surrounding buildings. The players are holed up in a supermarket, and there's also a kind of faceless community of survivors there that you have to keep alive with these main characters. And so those main characters are sort of the heroes of the movie, if you will. And surrounding the supermarket are, you know, like a hospital, a police station, a gas station, things like that where you can find resources. And part of what makes that game kind of neat is that it has this mechanic where whenever you leave the supermarket, you kind of roll the dice and have this possibility of a unique event occurring where you have to make a decision that could harm the community or help you. And sometimes those decisions don't always seem like the right way to go on a humanity level. Now, one thing that I think is actually interesting about this one, too, is that it has a potential for a betrayal mechanic where, you know, one player will have a definitely a different end goal from the rest of the team. But there's this other factor where in most games that have a betrayer, the other players are obviously playing for the team to win, and so if somebody behaves differently, if you can detect it, then you begin to figure out who is the person who's really not on your side. But in Dead of Winter, what happens is your individual characters have some of their own shortcomings. So you might have a character who has a insecurity or an illness or something that they keep private, and that might, for example, be a reason why they hoard food or medicine. And when it comes time to contribute food and medicine to the team, you might not be contributing it, not because you're betraying the team, but because you have this character that has this issue that they can make them look like you're working against the team. And so at that point, it kind of makes it a little murky on figuring out who the bad guy is. And in fact, there may not even be an actual bad guy. And this game and some similar games like it do have mechanics where you can, you know, vote people off the island. And so I think, I think that's cool. And Dead of Winter is one of the best at that. 
myself and a few friends are actually listed in the credits of Dead of Winter in the rule book because we were playtesters on that game. So obviously I have a little bit of a bias, but I don't get any uh, profits from it. At my former job, I met the creator of the game, and then that led to playtesting the game itself when it was still being made. And that was a pretty fun experience, being able to try it out before it came out. And when it came out, it was definitely more polished and a better game than when we first played it. My partner had created little painted miniatures for the game for us to play it when we were playtesting to make it seem more uh, fleshed out. Pun partially intended there. I really could go on indefinitely about board games, but maybe that's a complete subject for another time when we aren't in the process of rounding up the indoor activities I know. If you've listened to this podcast before, then you know that I'm a fan of cooking. Of course, cooking is pretty much most of the time an indoor activity. When it comes to being trapped inside because it's cold out and passing time, cooking is still a fun activity and in the colder winter times when you're trapped inside it can heat the place up a little bit and often you're making food that is comfort food. Now a previous episode of this show we talked about holiday food and that's certainly comfort food in general. One of the things that we like to have around here, not really for the holidays, but just on hand, is matzo ball soup. We don't make it from scratch. We have the box with the mix and the uh, soup base in it. But that's a super comforting soup. Pun not really intended this time. That was an accident. And we'll put additional ingredients in there, you know. We'll do the onions and celery and such. But I find that to be a very comforting food. Soup in general, of course, is pretty comforting. I have a corn chowder recipe that I haven't pulled out in a couple of years that's a good one for the winter time. It's one that my folks made a bunch when I was younger and I you know learned to make 
when I grew up. And it's one of those dishes that just reminds me of home. And it's pretty tasty. It has a lot of good things in it. I can't remember if I've listed it out on this podcast before, but there was definitely onion, celery, corn, sausage, knockwurst, which is uh, an ingredient that for some time it seems was relatively difficult to find where I live, and I found some recently and um, put it in the freezer in the intention of eventually making this soup again. Of course, you can bake all sorts of things, and baking is an interesting and good activity as an indoor activity compared with making some of these other things, because you don't have to eat it. Of course, you can bake all sorts of things, and baking is a good indoor activity. I suppose making soup could be too, but baking in particular is an example of cooking as an activity that doesn't need to go directly into eating. You're cooking as an activity and you're making bread or cookies or a pie or something like that. Of course, you're going to want to have some as soon as it's fresh out of the oven and cooled off a little bit, but you don't have to have it. You can save it for later. A batch of cookies you won't be eating all at once. So in that case, I do think that cooking is a good indoor activity. And if you have nothing else to do, it's good to just be able to prepare some food for later. Something I don't even mind doing is just a little bit of mise en place, a little bit of cutting up vegetables and having them for later, having them prepared and ready to go for when it's time to make a meal. And it's super good to have a couple of deli cups of onions and peppers and things like that that are just ready to go so that when you feel like making something, you cut out a few extra steps in cleaning that's already been taken care of. If I get to go to the farmer's market on the weekend, I definitely like to be able to spend a little time when I get home breaking down a little bit of the fresh produce so that I can have it for later in the week. And that's especially good when you might be busy or lazy and you have some, you just have less work that you have to do when making a meal and that's pretty helpful. I suppose really you could say just about anything that doesn't lead to a meal Sometimes I make macaroni salad for later. Sometimes I do pickling. And those are basically activities that just take up time in the kitchen that are good for when it's just cold outside and you can't go anywhere. I definitely do need to 
up my pickling game a little bit. I really just do cucumbers as a long-term project. And I'm pretty happy with that. I don't have a huge desire to pickle other things, but I would like to just have it in my wheelhouse, a comfort with it. I sometimes do a little fast pickle when it comes to preparing dinner and wanting to have something with a little bit of acid to it. But I don't do a lot of jarred pickling in general, and I think I would like to do more of that. I think those are pretty much the main activity-like cooking things I can think of. I suppose I can't not list video games as a favorite pastime for indoor activities. I don't think I need to go too far into detail. If you're trapped inside, it's probably good to have a game with some story to it. Although I do also play a lot of games that don't have story. I try to go a little bit back and forth between big story games and games that are just like an online multiplayer. But I probably sink the most time into the multiplayer. One good thing, though, about video games is that if you're trapped inside and friends and family are also trapped inside somewhere else, video games you can play online together, and that's a pretty good thing. Some of my friends and I got together regularly during the week to play video games during the pandemic, and that was a nice way to be able to interact with other people because we couldn't see each other in person for such a long time that having any kind of extra way of having additional human interaction was pretty nice. And some of the games that we would play were also relaxing. We play a game called Sea of Thieves, that is a simulator of sailing as a pirate, but most of the game really is just sailing around in a very beautifully rendered ocean that has daytime and nighttime and the stars come out at night, and there's sometimes storms and bad weather. And I would say that's probably about 80% of your time in that game with another 10% of that time digging up treasure, maybe. So video games definitely have to be up there as a pretty top indoor activity. As long as we're talking about screen-related entertainment, then I definitely need to add watching movies and TV shows. The colder months, the rainier times can be a great opportunity to catch up on what you've missed. For me, usually, 
in that realm of December, January, February, March, I am scrambling to catch up on all of the big nominated movies at the Oscars or the various Guild Awards or the BAFTAs. And that also includes TV shows that are popular that I might have missed. It really is a good cleanup season to try to check everything off as much as you can before all of the new season begins. We don't usually get a lot of the best stuff during that early year time period that's new for the year. Every once in a while, there's something that's pretty early on. I remember seeing everything everywhere all at once last year and thinking that it came out so early in the year that it might be forgotten at Oscar time. Whereas most of the time Oscar movies are released in December. Almost always. There's often a couple of summer movies, too, that make it into the Oscar nominations. Usually the big movies that have big special effects. And then again, it is a good time to catch up on TV. Ask your friends if you've missed anything. I'm not very good at catching up on shows that I'm multiple seasons behind on, but I definitely don't mind hearing about a couple of shows that are maybe new and I haven't heard of, and checking those out in the new year. Sometimes there's something that you just didn't know about because it wasn't super popular or because it just was brand new and you had never heard of it. Like, I definitely try to catch new seasons of shows I really like, and if I'm not paying attention, I'll very easily miss great new shows. And with so many streaming sites these days, who can even keep track, really? Truthfully, when it comes to watching movies and TV, it's good to just go with what you know throughout the year and then look up some lists at the end of the year and see what's, what's all the buzz. What are the best of the year shows and what are the best of the year movies? And usually when you get into those lists, you're you tend to be getting close to some of the best things to watch. So between movies and TV and video games, there's a lot of decent indoor activity to be had with the entertainment on screen.
Moving on to a lower resolution and smaller screen, I would of course be remiss if I did not mention reading, as I currently read mostly on an e-reader, that is a screen technically, but I do like reading and I think reading is a good sort of low-impact indoor activity to pass some time. Of course, I use the Kobo Clara HD e-reader from Rakuten. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, then you know a little bit yourself about the Kobo Clara HD e-reader. I do still use it all this time later. And I may get back to reading the instructions to you at some point. I know we only got about two-thirds of the way through the instruction manual for the Kobo Clara HD e-reader from Rakuten. But I felt somewhat interested in focusing on some various timely and seasonal topics in the last few months, obviously. And if you think about it, reading is kind of a year-round thing and not just an indoor activity. But it's still a good indoor activity as far as indoor activities that I know go. Another thing I like to do as an indoor activity, and this can be mixed with a couple of our other indoor activities, is listen to music. I have a relatively small and very slowly expanding collection of vinyl records. Of course, you can listen to music these days just about everywhere, and in fact, may even have access to a far larger amount of music on a device such as your phone when compared with your record shelf. But that said, vinyl is still pretty fantastic if you decide to put that kind of time and energy into something. I like to collect some of my favorite music and then every once in a while get a cheap secondhand record to listen to just for fun. I like to keep an eye out to see if there will be new reissues of albums I used to like. Being the particular age that I am is a little bit unique in music history as far as vinyl is concerned because, of course, there were vinyl records when I was young, but cassette tapes and compact discs became sort of the main 
way of getting music for many, many, many years, and especially through the 1990s, there was a period where vinyl records basically disappeared. And very little new music was finding its way onto vinyl because it had gone out of style, basically. And then today, it's gotten bigger again. I don't know if it's going great still, but vinyl definitely had a sort of second coming, and that's been overall pretty good, because you can get just about everything vinyl right now if you know where to look for it. But there's this stretch of time where I was getting really into music that not very much of the music that I got into was pressed on vinyl, especially the more flash-in-the-pan music, you know. Today, great hits from the 1990s are generally reissued and available on vinyl records, but because it was certainly not the norm to put everything on vinyl at the time, it's actually very difficult to find a good chunk of the music I used to listen to. Now, I will say in complete fairness that probably there is a sizable chunk of that music that is not on vinyl that was also not very good music. I recently began putting together playlists of 80s and 90s music on Spotify that I listened to based on music that was the most that I heard, that I heard a lot of, or that I heard in passing that I remember from the 80s and 90s. And, you know, the 80s is sort of like a little bit of a classic period in my mind where a lot of the music that I didn't like at the time I've come to appreciate in some fashion, either as kitschy or silly or something that's nostalgic for me. And only a handful of the things that I regularly listen to do I point at and say, Good Lord, that's quite bad. But when it comes to the 90s, I listened to a whole lot of music during that decade. And a lot of different music during that decade. A lot of experimentation and trying things out. And we would go record shopping. And so you would buy things out of curiosity just because of a name or a record cover. And, you know, you heard some things on the radio, but there wasn't the streaming platform that would just put you in contact with the genres and type of music that you liked. You had to go to shows or listen to the right radio station or talk to people and find things out. And so... As a result of that, I think I listened to a lot of interesting variety of music, but I also was therefore exposed to an exceptional amount of very kind of 
middle-of-the-road and mediocre music that, to be fair, I still have some nostalgic feelings about. But for sure, as I was doing this 90s playlist, and I'm still working on it, that it just seems so eclectic and very all over the place. And I do like something about that, but it's all so out of context that I don't listen to it in a sort of journey of discovery kind of way. It's just a shuffle of stuff I listen to. Back then, we used to make mixtapes and mix CDs that had a flow to them, that had a purpose. They could only have so many songs on them, about an album's worth, so you would put together just one album worth of music, and that would be hopefully somehow coherent, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But saving songs on Spotify isn't the same experience. I suppose you could experiment with doing short playlists that have an intentional order. To be fair, technically, the functionality to make a mixtape or mix CD type of thing is there. But we also used to have to create our own cover art for those sorts of things. So there is also that factor that is kind of lost with a Spotify playlist. I mean, you can create a thumbnail and... I do create thumbnails for my Spotify playlists because I like to personalize things, but it's still just not quite the same. I suppose, nevertheless, that the exercise of remembering and rediscovering some of the music that I listened to when I was younger is still an enjoyable activity. It's a good secondary activity, something that you can do in the background while you're working on something else. Because to the credit of Spotify, it is somewhat decent at serving the next song and having it be something you want to hear within the context of what you're already listening to, so... You don't have to sit there and search for one song after another. You'll potentially be pleasantly surprised by some of the songs that come up next as you're listening. Now, going back to vinyl for a moment, I have found that sitting down in front of the speakers or with headphones on is an especially enjoyable experience with vinyl. I don't know if I truly can hear how much better quality the sound is, but I convince myself that I can tell. And believing that I am convincing myself adequately, I will say that it does sound significantly better than MP3s streamed off online. It's supposed to be better, but my earbuds aren't exactly the highest quality either. 
I imagine no matter what I do right now, I don't have the most audiophile or adequate setup for listening to the vinyl, but I still enjoy it anyway. I think we've got some pretty good indoor activities rounded up so far. And I'm going to finish with one more and not go too deep into it because I'm not sure how deeply you can go. And I will also request that you there, dear listener, are considerate of whether this is truly an activity. But the last thing I will mention is taking a nap. Now you could take a nap outside, and sometimes while on vacation taking a nap outside is one of the best things you can do. Taking a nap inside on a cold or rainy day, maybe after you've just had lunch, maybe it's on the couch, well, that might just be about as good as it gets for indoor activities. Not especially social, but if it's very refreshing, a good timed nap, one that doesn't leave you too groggy when you wake up, a good nap. I feel inclined to include the good nap in this roundup of indoor activities I know. And with that, I will say I feel like we've reached an adequate number of good indoor activities for this session. Perhaps we'll be able to return to indoor activities I know at another time, as I think there may still be one or even two more indoor activities that I know. But we've done well. We've talked about puzzles, board games, cooking, video games, movies, television shows, reading, listening to music, and perhaps playlisting music, or making mixtapes, or mix CDs. And of course we just ended with napping. You may also feel free, dear listener, to reach out to me with some of your own favorite indoor activities on Twitter at RyanRamblesPod or at Anvil1. Nature can be a cruel and uncaring force in its extremity. As you get closer to the equator, or further away from the Earth's magnetic poles, you will encounter greater and greater challenges to some of the most basic conveniences of travel and livelihood. 
Whereas you and I, dear listener, may largely be able to avoid these inconveniences relatively easily, or traverse them with a complement of the best tools for the job, our inanimate friends, benches, must generally speaking remain in place for the long haul until their intended moment has returned. Because most benches must exist at all times in one place, they are often subject to conditions which make their intended benefit difficult or even impossible to realize for weary passers-by. However, that does not mean that we should also be robbed of the delight of the observation of those benches, nor in the appreciation of the fine photography achieved by our bench enthusiast friends from around the globe. For the scroll, we will now return to my Instagram feed of bench photos, whereupon I expect to find although I have not researched the matter in advance, a number of benches outdoors in the elements, facing nature while the rest of us can enjoy the comfort of the indoors. Our first bench comes from my benches. That's not my benches, but my benches, the username. It is from Bahia del Duque. This being the location. This one is in a park. And uh, it is not subject to severe weather. In fact, I expect that as we are just on the cusp of springtime, we are more likely to see benches that are emerging from the end of the difficult period of weather we've had. Although I will say that here in San Francisco, it has still been very cold and wet. So this bench from Bahia del Duque, or in Bahia del Duque, is a rustic-style bench with a simple wooden plank seat and a wooden plank back. The seat is a little bit perhaps stained or maybe even... Yeah, maybe it's stained. It's got a green tinge to it. The wood is very blonde. And the bench doesn't have feet. Instead, it has wagon wheels. And it would appear that those wagon wheels are set in some kind of concrete. So it's an aesthetic choice. You can't roll around the yard or the park on this bench. And it is surrounded by... Um, looks to be grass growing out of the dirt around it. It's a very hard-packed dirt surrounding with some bushes and 
what appears to be perhaps the trunk of a maybe tropical looking tree. It may be a palm, but I can't tell because I can only see the, the trunk. And then out of one of the wagon wheels closer to us, there is a small plant growing out. This does feel like the sort of post-winter aftermath where uh, this photo is taken before a groundskeeper has had time to trim the bushes from growing out of the wagon wheels and hanging over the back of the bench, making it less desirable to sit in. But it's very lush and green, other than the dirt plants surrounding this bench are very um, vibrant, so it does feel like maybe post-rain, if not post-cold. The second bench comes from Achsas Bench, who I believe we have had multiple times on the podcast. In this photo, we have a bench that is somewhat generic, I would say. And that does not mean it is without its design. It has a medium-colored wood, a four-paneled seating area, and then a two-paneled back. And the top of the two-paneled back has a wavy kind of carve-out on the top. It's very uniform. It doesn't have an especially rustic quality. And this bench is likely wet. You can see that the ground is also wet. And part of the reason you can see that the ground is wet and also the bench is that the bench is sitting on a curbside. A very thin, very small curbside that is lined with astroturf. The astroturf also looks very wet. Now the bench is up against a building, and this building has a dark blue trim along the bottom just above the astroturf. And then once you get about a foot and a half up to about where the seat of the bench is, then it kicks in this blinding bright banana yellow. And then uh, sort of inlaid in the banana yellow is a double-paneled window, and through the double-paneled window we can actually see what looks like some shop items for a store. And they appear to be winter-themed, like perhaps a Christmas hat, perhaps a stuffed rabbit, perhaps a penguin, perhaps a small Santa Claus. And then a little bit further down, uh, the building sort of angles out of frame on the left side of the frame. And when it begins to angle, it is bright fire engine red. So the upper half of the photo is extremely colorful and very stunning. And then the bottom half has kind of a drabness, but also a very palpable wetness to it. Here as well, there are a handful of leaves in the street. 
that uh, are also wet and kind of gross-looking. Our next bench comes from Bibank, and it is a photo that was taken in Morbihan. I don't know where that is, but I do know this about it. It is on a coastline. Here we have a bench that is perhaps concrete, very weathered, once painted white, but now just kind of decaying. The cement of the bench is a combination of chipped away paint and worn away color and sun-baked and, and also um, along one of the bottom legs of the bench. It's even stained and probably a little mossy. And uh, the rising up around the legs of the bench is just a great deal of wild grass that's growing. And in front of the bench is a dirt path. Where the, the, the camera angle is behind the bench and it's looking out to sea. And what looks to be a few meters away from the bench is the beginning of a little bit of a uprising of rocks that you could climb up on to look down at the water. And then off to the left of the bench, you can see further down the coast and the water washing over rock formations in the water. It's a very uh, beautiful looking scene. If anything, it does look a little cold, but maybe that's because of, that's my mindset. And the, the growing up of the grass just gives me this feeling of, it's been recently very, very weathery. And in fact, this bench, it just looks like it's been through so much that it's, it's difficult to not think of this as a kind of post-aftermath image. But it's a very pastoral one. The sky is almost completely clear. There are a few little wisps of clouds off to one side of the frame, but otherwise you can see all the way into the horizon. And here there is a uh, description. It's called the Kumbank. And we are back after some time without publishing, without forgetting you, dear Abankes, Abankness. Here is a nice picture shot in Morbahan Bank, Brittany, and it gives credit to the photographer, Sandrine Briand. The next bench comes from Vandal Bankis, who is another one I believe we've seen before. Probably since the last recording haven't changed who I follow, but I, I follow a number of bench-related accounts. It's just a question of which accounts I think continue to produce, and you know, whether I'm finding new ones often enough. And if I'm completely honest, I've been a little bit behind on my own bench posting responsibilities. 
So back to Vandalbankis. This one is located in Landgood de Prul. I'm not sure where that is. I might be able to follow up with you on where this bench is. This is definitely a winter-feeling bench photo. There is a very blue sky. It looks very crisp. But the trees are not colorful. They're not especially green. Most of them are bare. And the ground does appear to be perhaps a little frosty. It doesn't look like it's has snowed recently, but there's a there's a whitish tinge to the ground. Now our bench in question is in the center of the photo. And we are viewing it from behind. It is a very red bench with a um what looks like maybe like a painted iron legs that are uh, forged into one piece that's sort of seat-shaped. So the legs and the back posts are the, the same, and there's two of those on either end. The bench itself, the seat, is two planks of painted red wood. I, I think it's wood. And then the back is a angled, uh, looks like maybe another plank that is sort of winged on the hinges. It just has a cutout on either end that makes the top uneven with the bottom of the back plate, the back piece. Um, it, it doesn't honestly look like a very comfortable bench. But the location is quite beautiful because it is looking out at a lake a, or a pond. It looks like a very small pond. And I can see that the pond continues into the distance. So it may be uh, that there's a canal, perhaps. I don't see where it ends. And when I zoom in, there's a little bit of a brown coloration at the very center of the photo. And when I zoom in, I think I can see a tall but squat, sort of wide, brick building that looks to be catching maybe some evening light. And it's a bit more apparent in its reflection in the water that there's a building there. The bench itself looks a little bit worn out. Looks like the paint is chipping. And the light looks to be... I'm going to guess this is an early morning photo based on the frost and the somewhat sideways angle of the light. So it would probably not be super comfortable to sit here. Um, but I would certainly like to visit on a maybe nicer spring day. There is a very long description. Click the See Translation button because it's, it's pretty lengthy. So here we go. It's Bench on the De Brule estate near Zeist. De Brule is a former estate 
that forms part of the Stichti Lustvaranda. It has a scenic park with a curved water feature, a winding path system, and imposing tree groups. Since 1993, the estate has been the property of Utrecht Landschap. The garden, created by J.D. Zocher, has not been adjusted much over time, which has kept much of its former character. This is thanks in part to garden architect Leonard A. Springer, who was commissioned in 1913. To make a garden plan. In my brief defense, there was a period after 1913, so that's why I stopped. And then, to make a garden plan was written as almost a separate sentence, although the T was not capitalized. This is a quirk, perhaps, of the translation from the original language. Since Springer appreciated the work of his predecessor, Zocher, the changes were largely limited to some new planting. This is why the serpentine pond of Zocher is still there. The arch bridge, that looks like a Roman aqueduct, was probably designed by Springer in 1913. Now, I, I don't know if I can see this bridge. I'll have to look again. And if I can see the bridge, I will be sure to describe it to you. The ice cellar and hideout were decorated in 2001 as a bat shelter. You can walk freely on the paths, the Stotwegenpad, a clogged road of 11 kilometers, also leads over this estate. Well, that's very interesting. So I'm looking a little bit more closely at the photo. I don't see the bridge. Maybe the bridge is in another photo if there's more to the set. If it comes around, I'll let you know. But in the meantime, I think we'll see what's next. Okay, our next photo is once again Vondelbankis. And normally I like to try to have more variety in our... Um, creators here, but this is another very compelling image. This is at Bikhuizen Landgoed, and maybe I'm getting this right that Landgoed is a state from our last one. So this would be another estate, and it is a very, very intriguing image. It'll be an interesting one to see the translation for. I will attempt to describe it as best I can before the translation. 
So for starters, it's our location is in the woods. And we know this because there is a forest of bare trees and it is really foggy. So we can kind of see into the forest, but not very far. In part because what we are also looking at is a semicircle. The bench in question is a non-backed semicircle with a probably like wrought iron legs. The bench surface is um, not round but sided and it looks to be maybe septagonal. Yes, septagonal. So it's a semicircle, and it looks to be painted perhaps green, and it's a slat design. Thin slats, um, maybe about ten, make each seat, and they wrap around a little bit underneath. But they, they have no back. There's no back. Um, the ground appears to be covered in leaves and dirt. It's a uh, landscaped flat circle area. So this bench isn't in the, you know, the woods surround a landscaped area, an area that's been set up. And the way it looks to me is that it may be supposed to be like a round theater or performance space because behind the septagonal bench is a wall. It looks to be a cement wall and it has a handful of cutouts in it. There are, in the middle, there are three long slats that are almost like a castle might have. But they go from maybe a couple of feet below the top of the wall. And the wall, if I'm guessing, is about eight feet. Eight feet tall, a couple of meters, maybe um, two and a half. And then there is a wide, low window sort of cut out. And then there is another maybe door-shaped one on the far left at the edge of frame. So that wide window is of the semicircle really um, perpendicular to us, to our point of view. And you can see through that window into the forest. And really you can just see the trunks of trees. There's no other clear... Um, you know, architecture or other kind of landscape. So we have this semicircle, and the semicircle ends about, I would say, about three quarters of the way across the frame. And in that remaining space where the wall ends, we can see deeper into the forest, and there looks to be a path from this semicircle deep into the forest, and uh, because of the fog, it just sort of vanishes. And then the only other remarkable thing is that at the middle of the semicircle, if it was a full circle, is what appears to be just a flat disk. And I can't tell what it's made out of. I can't 
it's uh it looks to be reflective and it's not tiled it looks like one surface and it may even be thin like it looks like a plate it doesn't look like it's something that goes super deep underneath the ground but from the sense of the surrounding structure i would say that it is probably permanent it's where you might think there would be a fountain if there was a fountain in this semicircle, but instead there's just this disc. And the disc can't be much more than uh, maybe two, a meter and a half wide. Tops two. It's, it, it's not that big. It's not big enough to be like a stage or anything. It's a very evocative image. There may be the beginnings of stairs going down to that path, but I really can't tell. And the leaves are a little bit of a reddish tint. Okay, so let's venture deeper in here and look at the description. Okay, here we go. Bank, maybe bench, on the Kainberg at Bikoisen estate near Velp, with a height of about 50 meters. The Kainberg is a fairly high hill on the edge of the embankment wall in Velp. From a toponymic point of view, there has probably been a large boulder on top of the hill in the past. Historical records show that the Kynberg, in the times before the christening of the Netherlands, had a sacred function. In the glory days of Estate Beekhuizen, a two-and-a-half-kilometer-long spiral-shaped path led to the top. This is also referred to as a serpentine, or snail hill. On the way, 16 sites offered a view of the area that is the Lisseldal. Lis I'm not sure what that word is. These days, you can't look that far anymore because of the overgrown forest and the construction. Nature Monumenten has restored the Kynberg to its old age. On the site of Natur Monumenten, there is information about a four-kilometer-long with blue posts indicated Vandalroot Bekhoisen Kynberg Volufazum that leads through a hilly landscape to the Kynberg. You enjoy romantic water features, beautiful views, and waterfalls along the way. 
Well, that sounds very nice, but I will definitely be sure here to stress that this looks kind of ominous and a little scary. It is interesting, the idea that maybe this spot was ceremonial at one time, and that over time it kind of maintained its some of its character, but with these modern elements added as though the people who built in this space kind of respected the original space as well, but updated it, because the cement wall looks very modern. It's smooth, it's, you know, it's got sharp angles. The bench, you know, it doesn't look super modern, but it doesn't have a kind of, it does not have a rustic quality, so it's interesting. Moving on. Now this bench, and this next one, is from Mein Bankerl, and the image is in Tessimo. I'm not sure where that is. It is a, it has got a beautiful vista with mountain ranges. And from this photograph's point of view, we are behind a very unique bench. It looks like it's meant to recline in. It's sort of wave-shaped or S-shaped, and it's leaning back very far. So if you were on it, it would be like being on a reclining sofa. But this would be a reclining sofa where the surface is a series of slats. And these slats would, there's probably maybe 30 of them. And then the structure holding it up looks to be two flat, two um, thin flat, maybe pieces of wood or concrete. And then a further uh, two legs per concrete piece. Um, there's metal drilled in with small uh, feet coming out that probably hold it in place somewhat. It looks very heavy and very sturdy, but the ground it's on is a little bit sloped. And we are in shade. Um, to the side of this very reclined bench is a set of um, picnic benches. And I can see that there are perhaps some hikers standing around the picnic benches. And this is, this is the right side of frame. And there's a tree line, and the tree line is what is creating the shadow that all of this is in. And the shadow leads a little bit further down the hill. And in fact, in the deep valley beyond, you can see that the mountains are casting shadows down into the valley. Now, perhaps a 10 meters away from the bench, uh, going downhill on this slope, there is a lookout that is a square with railings and a sign, a presumably informational sign that um, 
might explain what the view of the valley is. And then the valley just spreads out into the distance and terminates with hills on the other side. And the range just keeps going farther and farther into the distance. And in fact, the distant part of the range is snow-capped. At first I thought perhaps there was a string of um, observatories there, but apparently not. It is hard to get a sense of scale of the distance, but I can see what looks like agricultural land in the valley. It is a quite beautiful photo, and the sky is crystal clear. It looks like it's probably a very crisp day. It looks as though the single hiker that I can see in this photo is wearing long sleeves. I'm not sure where Tessimo is. Now there is a description that is rather brief, and I am going to look at the translation to see if we can learn a little bit more. It looks like it would be a fun place to hike to, though. It says, On the adventure path Vorbical, or Vorbischl, there is a very special place, the viewpoint overlooking Boatsen. And there's a hashtag for Italia. Well, this is interesting. I'm Tessimo did sound like a Italian name to me. So perhaps we can learn more about a few of these locations in a later visit. Let's see if we can do maybe one more. Um, I'm going to continue scrolling, but I did notice that there was a bench along the way that um, is in Bendigo, Victoria, which we visited in another episode. Um, from park underscore benches. Um, and Bendigo, if I remember correctly, is where we learned the chicken roll was invented. And this from park underscore benches, the comment, I may have been a bit slack lately, but I still love park benches. Well, right on, park benches. Uh, I feel the same way. I haven't been able to upload any good bench photos lately myself, so I'm glad to see that you're back on the horse there. And uh, as a quick description, this looks like a suburban bench roadside, maybe for a bus stop. Green municipal bench. Um, vertical slat design, probably metal. 
about 30, 40 of them. Um, there's a little path behind the bench that goes into a neighborhood where I can see a house of some kind that has a wall around it. Trees around look like maybe eucalyptus. Maybe about early evening photo. In any case, welcome back, park underscore benches. Okay, our, our final bench for this section, our eighth bench, is from Assis A. Sor Unbank. It's a series of dots, or periods in the name. A little bit hard to describe, but I'll put it in the description. This is our only today urban bench, and it's in Paris. And it is uh, from up high. It looks to be taken from the second floor of a building, looking down onto the street. And there is a uh, shopping couple whose faces have been blurred. And... Uh, the woman is sitting on the bench. There's a shopping bag there, and the gentleman is standing with his jacket in his hand. And some kind of bag, perhaps, uh, with a strap over his shoulder. And the bench is a two-sided, back-to-back bench with uh, green paint. One narrow beam is the back that's a shared back. Uh, two posts holding it up. It's a little bit in profile, so it's hard to tell. Or we're looking at it uh, straight on perpendicular. Um, but it's green. And it matches sort of the green of a wire trash can nearby. The wire trash can has a clear plastic bag in it, so you can see all of the garbage. And then there is a large um, kiosk with a poster in it on the, on the curbside. And the kiosk poster is advertising the, the Theatre des Champs-Élysées and some event for the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. I can't see much more detail in the writing on it. And then there is a street, an urban downtown city street. The top of the frame and the part of the left edge is adorned with overhanging trees. And there are trees across the street. I can see behind the kiosk what might be some sort of a shop. It might be actually even like an office depot advertising school supplies. And then another shop directly across the street. 
and on the far edge, the front of a Best Western hotel. There are a couple of cars parked in the street, a commercial van and a black uh, station wagon. A small crowd of people uh, stand across the street. It looks like they might be waiting for a bus. And from the lighting, you can tell that all of the light is diffuse. There isn't um, any direct sunlight in the image. I do like to have some urban photos from time to time. I wouldn't say that this is an especially iconic photo of Paris. Um, the photo could be just about anywhere. In fact, I thought there was a chance when I first saw the photo that it was here in the U.S. Um, but benches, I think, are an important part of the urban landscape, not just the trails and hikes and mountaintops, but also in, in the city, where you can wait for a train or a bus, or just enjoy the afternoon with a friend having a soda or ice cream, or if you're in France, probably a extremely delicious baguette with ham and butter and probably not much else. Okay, well, I don't want to overstay our welcome. And I think that we have a pretty good set of eight benches right here. Although, if I'm completely honest, I would be more than happy to talk more about benches as soon as possible. I wouldn't say that these benches were super winter-timey. When I first planned on doing this segment, it was still the dead of winter, and I didn't have time to get to this, so it's not surprising that the season has sort of passed by. Because I can promise you that if you spend time looking at benches on Instagram, you will see many a bench covered in snow or subject to the elements. But this is a bit of good news. It's March in the Northern Hemisphere. It is moving on to springtime, and I think we're beginning to see that now. So maybe the next time we can talk about benches, we'll be seeing a full-bloom spring with flowers and beautiful colors everywhere. And if not, so be it. Another eight or ten benches will be nice no matter how you cut it, I think. And that was our scroll for this episode. I like scrolling through benches, and I'm willing to do that again. But what do you like to scroll through? Do you have food or animals or funny things? Let me know.
we shall leave it there for this episode. I hope you have been adequately rambled to rest, and are not hearing what I am saying right now. However, if for some reason you are conscious at this time, I will leave you with these parting words. Beautiful. Six. Husky. Jolly. Writer. Nut. Hesitant. Elite. Actor. And tiny. Thank you again. I am your host, Ryan. Music has been by Disparition. And I'll see you in the next episode.